Pastor Xavier Reese and the true marks of a leader. The qualifications of a bishop are for all men. There is no person who is exempt. Personal character in life, personal family life, personal experience in life, personal reputation in life. Listen, my qualifications is not my education to be a bishop. It's the home. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. One of our Lord's last acts on earth was to establish the house of God, the local church. Today, as he continues his study in the epistle of 1 Timothy, Pastor Xavier examines God's intention of the leadership of his house. Let's join Pastor Xavier in Chapter 3 for today's Bible study, The Office and Qualifications of a Bishop. Now, the function of the elder, the bishop, was the local pastor, the pastor teacher over the local congregation, such as Paul over the church of Ephesus, Epaphras over the church of Colossae, and now Timothy over Ephesus. Many say, well, this letter is not written to Timothy. Timothy was not the pastor. There's no such thing as one pastor. Well, it's very evident that they're written to one man. And he's the one left in charge. To Colossae, Epaphras went there as the pastor, seeking the counsel of Paul. And Paul commends him. The pastor teacher would feed the flock of God, tend to the flock, protect the flock from false doctrine and abuse. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, Peter says, I, whom an elder, exhort you elders, feed the flock of God, not by constraint, not for filthy lucre or money, but of a ready mind. And he exhorts them. Acts 20, 27, Paul said the same thing to the Ephesian elders, and he was blameless of the blood of any man. He had taught them publicly from house to house. He would have other elders to assist him, but he, like Moses, was the one called and anointed to lead the flock. Paul makes this clear in Acts 20, 28. I did this. I did this. God called him. Yet there were other elders, because he called the elders of Ephesus, didn't he? But was the church ruled by, the, uh, by a multiplicity of elders? No. We don't have that teaching in the New Testament. And yet, many today teach the multiplicity of elders as the leadership of the church, as if it's some kind of democracy. It is not. God calls a man, he anoints a man, and then God verifies and confirms what he's going to do through the man, and though there may be other elders that come alongside that serve in the church, he is distinct. He is the pastor that God has called and anointed. Now, the Presbyterian church is ruled by the elder men, presbyteros. That's where you get the word. Not the senior pastor. So the pastor is just a hireling. He seeks a job. They tell him what he can do, what he cannot do. He has no, no business in any of the business of the church. He's just a hireling. A job. The Episcopalian church from Episcopals, which overseers, that's where they get it from, is ruled by the overseers of the church, multiplicity of elders. The congregational church is ruled by the congregation through voting. We attempt to follow the example of the New Testament as God calls a man, anoints him, and though there may be other elders exercising the position of 
bishops overseeing. God has anointed one man and called one man, and he does the leading through that man. It is not a dictatorship. Everything is run through the scriptures. And time will bear out whether God has called the man or he's called himself. The function of a bishop is to oversee the flock of God then. And notice thirdly, the qualifications for the office of a bishop in verse 2. First of all, the qualifications are for all men. There is no person who is exempt. The qualifications are divided into four categories from verse 2 to 7. Here's the four categories. Personal character in life, verse 2 and 3. Personal family life, verse 4 and 5. Personal experience in life, verse 6. Personal reputation in life, verse 7. The total number of qualifications, as I count them, are 15. But I don't want to argue about numbers. The number will vary if you count the explanations or reasons that accompany some of these qualifications. So I look at the qualifications. I'm not counting the explanations or the definition of whatever they're telling. The positive qualifications are found in verse 2. The negative ones in verse 3. The qualifications are focusing on character, never ability or reputation. Don't confuse reputation with character. Character is who you are. Reputation is what people think you are. There's a difference. The most important thing to mention, perhaps, about these requirements that they focus on the outward, visible character and conduct, not the intent of the heart, for God alone knows the heart of each person. But having said that, we can and we better judge the outward action by the scriptures. I can't judge your heart, but if you do something, I can say that's allowed in scripture or that's not allowed in scripture. I don't have to know your heart. The action will be judged scriptural or not, and we better judge it. Now, notice, the bishop must be blameless. The word blameless is made up of two words with the negative A preceding it. The word lambano means to take hold of. The word epi means upon, and the prefix a negates it being in front of the word. Gnosis to know, agnostic not to know, or ignorant. Here, these three words, the bishop, therefore, is an overseer. He's to be one who is above reproach in matters of life and conduct in such a way that any accusations made are false and slanderous not being able to be proven. So we're talking about visible, tangible, confirmable proof against a bishop. We're not talking about gossip. We're not talking about your opinion. We're not talking about your emotions. We're not talking about personality clashes. We're talking about visible, tangible, provable, verifiable evidence. That's what we're talking about. He's not talking about perfection. We'll get into that. The word does not teach or imply sinless perfection nor faultlessness. 
He is a man as any other with feet of clay. But the nature of the offenses listed here, which deal with moral and ethical character, would question his rights to oversee and lead those in the house of God if he's not living to the example of them in Christ Jesus. It's very clear. He is held to the highest level, a higher level of accountability and responsibility than the average believer, even though he fails in the similar area, the average person, because he, being called to a higher responsibility, is enabled to occupy that office, so the judgment must be harder on him. It's just the way it is. He is not to be accused lightly, by the way, or flippantly by every or any person for any whim or dissatisfaction. In chapter 5, verse 19, says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except before two or three witnesses. He repeats it again in, in Titus 3, 1 and 2 in a different way. In other words, the scriptures are their standards, and, and men who sit in the position of bishop are not faultless, and they are approachable, and they can be accused, but... Make sure you have your facts. Make sure it's between two and three witnesses. And make sure that it's not false. In other words, he's saying it's not a light matter to accuse someone in a position of a bishop of something that would disqualify him. You remember Korah, along with his 250 friends, that accused Moses and Aaron of falsely declaring their authority and, and taking too much authority upon themselves in number 16. And Moses said, well, let's ask God, see what, what he says. And, you know, God opened the earth up and swallowed up Korah and his friends. Now, this is not to try to intimidate anybody, no. But again, the message is that the office that God appoints people to should not be challenged without evidence, without having the facts. The opening requirement seems and is taken by many to be the hitting for the following and particular qualifications. So the word blameless is really a, a, a heading. What do you mean by blameless? And then he goes on to say, this is what I mean by blameless. In this area, in this area, in this area, in this area. So this is a category label under which everything else falls. Now to water these qualifications down or to compromise them, is to ignore the authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, and the inspiration of Scripture by the Holy Spirit. You cannot ignore them. You better not violate them. To allow men to oversee when they are unable to meet or fail in these areas is to destroy biblical authority among the people of God by doing away with consequences. And this has happened in churches, sadly. To permit an overseer to continue in a place of his prior position despite his failure without the proper discipline and the time to prove genuine repentance encourages the congregation to have a low view of sin and purity for life, giving themselves over to sin. God help us. You see, if I fail in adultery and then I get back up here, how can I confront you for it? What authority do I have? None. It's very simple. Notice thirdly that the bishop 
must be the husband of one wife. This really is the first qualification. And really, with, with, with what we've explained with blameless and this one, with this, everything falls under it. Paul is not teaching that an overseer has to be married to occupy the office of a bishop because Paul was single and Timothy was single, okay? So he's not teaching that, that it's compulsory to be married. Paul is not teaching also that an overseer cannot marry or remarry because Scripture clearly allows remarriage in the case of adultery or the death of a mate. Jesus, Matthew 5.32, Matthew 19.9, and Romans 7.2 and 3. So if your wife or husband dies, you can remarry only in the Lord. If your mate commits adultery on you and you choose to divorce them, then you as the innocent party, you have the right to remarry. In fact, to confirm this, Paul the Apostle encourages the younger widows in chapter 5, verse 11 through 14 to remarry if they're under 60 years of age. And if being remarried would disqualify, then that would disqualify their husbands from being bishops and he would be contradicting himself. So remarriage is allowed in the right condition be it death of a maid or being the innocent party of adultery. Only in the severe times of persecution, Paul gave his counsel that you should remain single in 1 Corinthians 7, 26-31. And that was his counsel. It wasn't a command. Paul also is not teaching that an overseer cannot be married more than once. Because if he had been married and divorced two, three, four, up to 20 times before he came to Christ, when he comes to Christ, he's what? He's a new creature. God sees him as never been married. All his sins have been forgiven. Okay? Now he's a Christian, providing his wife has remarried and refused to reconcile to him as a non-believer after having exhausted every attempt as Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16. So if you come to Christ, you've been divorced, then you're a new creature. If your wife is remarried, you're free. If she has re remarried, then your obligation by principle is to share the Lord with her that she might come to know Christ. For she was your wife and depending on the circumstances why you remarried. But you're a new creature. Okay? In Christ. If she is a believer when you divorced her, then you must reconcile back with her. Provided she hasn't remarried. Don't go break up in that marriage. Don't go back. Some people teach you to go back. No, 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 no. Don't go. And then you're to set your home in order. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11. And again here, 1 Timothy 3, 5 speaks about if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he rule or care for the house of God? Listen. My qualifications is not my education to be a bishop. Sadly, too many churches put the emphasis there. It's the home. Now, Paul is not teaching that an overseer, again, cannot remarry if his wife should die. Okay? You have that freedom in the Lord. Now, in all three of the texts, that we gave to you, verse 2 here, verse 12, and chapter 5, verse 9. The wording is the same. 
So however you interpret one, you must also apply it to the meaning of the other two. Right here, it's a one-woman man. One who is faithful to that woman he's married. The phrase does teach the following. We've looked at what it doesn't teach. Let's look at what it does teach by comparing the full counsel of God. Paul is teaching by implication that marriage was the norm for life, the place for a man's credentials to oversee and lead the house of God, not education or seminary. This was the testing ground for one who would serve in the church. Sadly, that is not the qualification today. You've got men who are behind the pulpit that are terrible fathers, terrible husbands, and they, they wouldn't be fit to lead a pack of wounded dogs. And yet, they are shepherds. Paul is teaching that an overseer is to be a man who is dedicated to one woman, faithfully for life, and no other woman is ever to have his affection or devotion, namely, the wife that he has married, a one-woman man, one woman at a time. Okay? Provided one has died. That doesn't mean one at a time, one night, and one the other, okay? <laughs> so let me clarify that. Now the noun and the phrase have no article, emphasizing character of nature and communicating quality, not quantity. The quality of relationship. For whoever God has joined together, no man can put asunder, Matthew 19, 6, or separate. Paul is teaching that an overseer is to be a, a man of sexual purity to his wife, him, her alone, which would prohibit kissing, petting, or sexual intercourse with any other woman. Sexual unfaithfulness should not be thought of only when sexual intercourse takes place, by the way. It can occur without that taking place. Sexual violation through the scripture is clearly not limited to sexual intercourse as you study it. We don't have the time this morning, but it can be violated. If you're flirting with another woman, you're going to lunch, and there are affections going on, you are on the road and perhaps even committing slight adultery. So you be careful. Okay? You be dedicated to your wife and your wife alone, and you make sure you do not give your affections or take affection from anybody else in an inordinate manner beyond the covenant of marriage. Remember, fungus among us. That's just the way it is. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornication and adulterers God will judge. Hebrews 13, 4. The example of judgment passed upon Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, should make it very clear and should be a very strong warning to any man who would think that he can occupy the office of a bishop without obeying the scriptures or fearing God. God meticulously gave all the requirements, all the offerings, all the particulars, and Nadab and Abihu drank some wine, got a little drunk, went in to offer strange fire, and God barbecued him. Listen, God may not roast a lot of pastors, but God will remove them one way or another. He's not up there biting his nails, but that is not a, any excuse for us not to hold up the standard, the high view of Scripture in the church. All the qualifications are masculine, by the way, if we went on down. 
in verse 1 through 7, there is no place in the New Testament where women are declared elders or bishops, not one. There is no double standard with God. Every requirement listed for a bishop is required of every believer. Everything here is required of you, with the exception of two things, the ability to teach and being a novice. No double standard, but I'm held to a higher responsibility and accountability than you. The requirements provide Timothy with the standard for those who are to lead in the house of God and remind men the needful and careful examination before seeking service of God because they are responsible and accountable to God. And he makes that very clear in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, how to conduct himself in the house of God. Now, these standards focus on the character and conduct, delegating spiritual authority to every steward and servant of Christ. There is no exception. If they stand in this position, they must uphold it. This list is repeated somewhat in variation in Titus 1, 6 through 9 and Titus 2, 5 through 9. Now, the rationale that no person can meet these requirements to perfection because everyone is a sinner and imperfect is to ignore the enabling of God or to accuse God of calling without enabling. If God calls you, he enables you. If you fail, it's your fault, not God's. It's real simple. The rationale that all men can serve because all men sin in their hearts in these ways, thereby failing inwardly in the same manner that some may fail outwardly, is to accuse God of requiring a useless and pretentious list and to meet the service that he calls for, as well as not distinguishing the intent at heart from the action in society. Yes, we may fail in heart, but that's not what he's talking about. Every man knows what this means before they fail. So when you fail, don't cry wolf. Understand it well. The rationale that declares that the failure by overseers in these areas has no cause to remove him from service if he repents is to confuse and mistaken restored fellowship with God with restoration to service when one has disqualified himself from service. Forgiveness is never the question. The minute you repent, you're forgiven. But fitness for service, that's a different matter. The scriptures must be the standard. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, 29, he gives himself black eyes lest he be disqualified. In 2 Timothy 2, 21, he says you're either a vessel of honor or dishonor. You make that choice to be used of God. You disqualify yourself. God does not. People don't disqualify you. You disqualify yourself if you fail. A bishop must be blameless and the husband of one wife. Everything else falls under these categories. Quite a standard, isn't it? But God enables us. Paul has given to Timothy these three important truths about the office of a bishop. Let's not fall them by the wayside. The commendation of the office of a bishop is very, very clear. The function of the office of a bishop is of the utmost importance. And the qualifications for the office of a bishop are very clearly laid out.
good stuff for the church. Sadly, too many churches are not applying it. Pastor Xavier Reese and the importance of following God's standard for church leadership and not that of men. Now today's message, The Office and Qualifications of a Bishop, is available for only $4, and we can send you a copy on CD. And this will also include what Pastor Xavier shared the last time we were together as well. Now once again, the title to ask for is The Office and Qualifications of a Bishop, or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And please be sure and include the call letters of this station somewhere in your correspondence. This information is helpful when we check on the impact of this outreach in your area. How do you guard the church against false teachings? Get equipped when you join Pastor Xavier Reese for the next edition of Simple Truths. Tell a friend. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 